My mother believed and my father believed that if I wanted to be president of the United States, I could be, I could be vice president. This is America. Former Vice President Joe Biden has been elected president of the United States. It is my greatest honor and privilege to have been your president. We will be back in some form. We are still deeply divided. Public health experts warned this was coming unless more was done. And here we are now. Are you proud of what happened here today? Absolutely. Never before in American history has there been an uprising like this. Of the 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, I don't know how many today are feeling, dear God, what was I thinking? But I would wager a lot more are thinking, let's carry on this fight. Character matters. It matters. Tell them the truth matters. The 21st century is going to be the American century. Because we lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example. That is the history of the journey of America. It's the Irishman in America. Marion McKeown is home. And I guess, Marion, it is fortunate in some ways that you were home when Shane McGowan passed. A close, close friend of yours, 65 years old, uh, way too young. And just so many tributes pouring in now. Uh, you must have felt some level of fortune to be back and there to be able to be with the people closest to him. Well, yeah. And, you know, it, we sort of knew really um, for for the last uh, couple of days and, and even the longer possibly that, that, you know, Shane wasn't really going to get better at, at this point. He, you know, he did get to get home for a couple of days, which I think meant a huge amount to, to him and, and to Victoria because that was what he wanted and that was kind of keeping him going in in, in, in Vincent's where they really took incredible care of him, you know. Mm. And um, and so that was, but it was really, he, he had a very difficult year and, you know, that, and that's, that's really understating it. And the last, you know, I was home in June and he was in Vincent's then and, and, um, you know, I was in to see him and, and uh, he was, uh, Shane always saw the funny side of everything. You know, it was one of his gifts and the darker the humour, the better, you mm-hmm. know, and, and we had some great laughs about just about everything really. And then on the phone a couple of times in the interim where, you know, it, we basically just gratuitously insult each other <laughs> for sport. You know? And and he he was better at it than me, let me tell you. Yeah. You can always go lower. I mean, I was interested to know there's so much now being written and after such a tumultuous week for Dublin and Ireland, um, he is, you know, an ambassador of nearly another time. I was seven years old when Fairy Tale of New York hit. And uh, so for me, it was always my brother and his generation who were like, this guy's a god. And I never quite understood it. How did you first come into contact with Shane? Well, you know, I was a, a student and I think um, when when you what you just said there about it was a different time and, and just for the gang out there, because I'm maybe not that many were. I was a, a student in the 80s and I ran into Shane first in Dublin and then in New York. I was over there on. A, no, I wasn't. Um, was I, I was on, yeah working in some form or other in New York and then uh he came to, they, they were always over and back to Dublin and uh, we had a house um, on Victoria Street in Portobello, not far from where I ended up living. Uh, and it was affectionately known as Hotel Sin. It was a bit of a party house and, and everyone ended up there. And we I got to know Shane through and Victoria and his sister Siobhan and other 
really dear friend of mine all around the same time. And it was mayhem. And the thing was, I think this was Dublin in, in the very early 80s. And if you were a student here, there was a good chance you weren't probably going to get a job. There was, and I think the time that Shane was writing about and the time that inspired him, it was the Irish diaspora. But in the 80s in Ireland, people were leaving the country in tens of thousands, like at massive numbers. That There were no jobs here. Ireland was in a god-awful state. It was a basket case, pretty much, of the country. Now, it was great fun in a lot of ways because... That people weren't almost thinking about, uh, certainly we weren't, even though we were all studying various things, but y- you had this feeling, well, you know, there's probably no jobs anyway, so we may as well enjoy ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, that was kind of how it was. And uh, so, as I said, there were a lot of people who were emigrating to, to London and to New York and all over the place. And you had the Donnelly visa and you had a recognition um, ev- or, uh, everywhere that Ireland was not economically in a good place in the 80s. And Shane was writing about, and I remember, you know, I went to London and there was a difference. If you went as a graduate, there was a difference in a way in how you were treated. But I remember all those poor young fellas. And this was an era when, let's not forget, the Birmingham Six, like four teenagers were sent to prison, um, uh, were convicted, you know, on, on confessions everyone knew were coerced and on no evidence. You know, it was an anti-Irish time, the, the, the Birmingham Six as well. You know, um, it was a, a really difficult time. There were guy, there were young fellows, and I remember this, uh, who were arrested and, and picked up as terrorists because they were on the, the tube station carrying Hurleys because they had joined the local GA club in Kilburn or wherever. Mm. You know, and, and these were guys who had so little and they were living in miserable bedsits and they were working 14 hours a day on construction sites. And, you know, you would see them at the early Pogues gigs and just their feeling of having a voice and a conduit and somebody who acknowledged their their loneliness and gave them a, a tribe almost. And, you know, I, I think that that to me was Shane's great legacy. And yeah, you know, he, of course, he's been fated by, you know, the songwriting greats and the, the rock stars around the world, all that, as he should be for the brilliance of his music. But it was his empathy and his ability to connect and to articulate the loneliness and the anguish of, of people who didn't want to leave Ireland, who mm. didn't want to go, but they had no choice back wow. then. And, wow. and I think that that was something that, because people now, you know, forget what Ireland was like in, in the 80s, how grim it was and how repressive it was. And and there was, you know, Shane was very, very complex and, and he was ferociously shy, but he also had a swagger, by God, you know, and there was a defiance about him and it was a defiance on every level. And, you know, I, I think like he, he was never afraid to say what he thought. I don't think he ever said anything else in all the time I knew him. I, I never remember him once dissembling or, or you know, hedging his bets or he was so unshakably authentic. And I think, again, that was another thing that that people really, you know, respected and probably wish they had a bit more of themselves in a way as well, because there was no side to it. You know, yeah. what you saw was exactly what you got. I obviously had Frank Murray on the show some time ah, ago. Ah, Frank, yeah. And God. you would have known Frank. Character. I a, knew Frank well. He was he was a character. Former manager of the Pogues. Yeah. Frank was obviously there in the studio when Fairy Tale of New York was coming together. And 
he spoke to me about that light bulb moment of a holy shit moment where yeah. he ran to the bookies and, and <laughs> said, I have the Christmas number one and it's the Pogues <laughs> and them laughing him out of it oh, and uh, asking him to name his price. Uh, how much of you should have done it two way you should have done a two way <laughs> yeah. bet there he would have been yeah. a lot better off <laughs> how do you remember that uh, specifically and how you know did you you probably weren't surprised by such a tender beautiful song emerging from him but certainly it, it was I was probably in the midst of the the write off as well there's an awful lot of people that would judge the book by its cover and assume an older generation who would say negative things about Shane and oh, not indeed, assume that yeah. he had this tender soul and lyricism within him. Well, you know, I I remember one very funny instance where um, the way, every, I can't remember now where it was, but there was a concert. We were all getting um, on the bus and Shane hadn't, um, they got to number two and he was late coming out of whatever pub they stopped off and, and I, it was either Frank or Joey Cash who said, oh, you're not even number one. Get on the bus, you're not even number one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and you know, every, everybody laughing. But they're, they're, um, when, when, when the Pogues started first, the Irish, the traditional Irish purists were vitriolic um, in, in their antipathy towards Shane and they thought, how dare he? You know, people like Tommy Macon, Noel Hill, thanks to you all. Like they, they really... Christy Moore was always a great defender and the Dubliners were always great defenders because the Dubliners were in spirit. They were the Pogues' spiritual twins, almost. Mm. They had that same, the irreverence, the joie de vivre, the, you know, that they couldn't, the two fingers to anyone who, who, who you know, wanted to keep them on the straight and narrow. And, and again, that's sort of a, a really good-humoured defiance about them. And, and you know, Shane adored and, and was a little bit afraid of it, it has to be said, Ronnie Drew. <laughs> um, a, a little bit intimidated by Ronnie Drew, but but adored him and he adored them all, John Sheehan, all, you know, they they were really good friends. And, you know, I, I do remember um, 1990 was the, the World Cup and there was, and just mentioning Frank, they reminded me of it, uh, there, the, there was a, a song that was written for the Irish um, soccer team, and going all and uh, the Pokes decided they do their own, and uh, it was the unofficial song. And somebody asked uh, Frank about this, and Frank said, "Well, you know, most things the Pokes do are unofficial. Let's face it, you know, <laughs> just very, very deadpan." But it was, it was um, Jack's Heroes. It was called, and I remember the day that the video was shot, and the Pokes were playing the Dubliners in a, a fake soccer match. They were falling over each other. I think it was Daily Man Park who was shot, and just a three-day party that went on around it. But I listened to that song weirdly just a couple of days before Shane died. I thought, God, and you can hear the joy and the just the unbridled fun of it and the mischief. And I think that Shane had that that. When, you know, some of the lyrics, and to me, it's interesting, Jarlett, because I love fairy tale New York, although I used to always kid with Shane say, ah, you know, I prefer Last Christmas. Mom's much better. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, I, I will say it, and I said it to Shane, it's kind of, you know, it's a tough call for me. I, I really did love Last Christmas when, no, the, when that came Marianne, out as well. It's a sacrilege. Yes, yes, I know, but... You know, I, as I say, I, I said to Shane several times, now, nah, last Christmas is better. And he would laugh because, you know, he got sick of fairy tales, to be fair. And he got sick of talking about it and he got sick of... And to me, fairy tale obscured. It was a blessing and a curse. Look, he, 
he needed the money. Shane, they, 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 Shane and Vic never had a lot of money. They lived so modestly, you know, and, and the royalties were certainly much needed. But I think um, in a way it obscured some of his other writing that people went, oh yeah, fairy tale. But if you look at the body of Shane's work, you know, starting with, with his the first album, Red Roses for me, and, you know, up right up to Hell's Ditch, um, in the space of, he did, I think it was five albums in, what, 14 years or thereabouts. Hmm. And, you know, the people, Rum Sodomy and the Lash, I think most people will agree. And I think that was the happiest time in Shane's life, around the time when they were recording Rum Sodomy and the Lash, because they knew where they were onto something great. They knew they weren't a flash in the pan. They knew that this album was going to really stick it to the critics and the naysayers. And, and it really did. And then they came out with If I Should Fall From Grace a couple of years after that. And that just cemented the reputation, you know, with, and, and Fairy Tale was on that. But so were so many other masterpiece songs. And I think for me, songs like Broad Majestic Shannon, I always loved. And, you know, there were a couple of lines in that, Jarlath. And it's, um, and it's to me, I had family in Tipperary as well. And th- th- it just summed up that thing of those communities where people were so close. And they went to each other's houses Every night and they'd sit around and chat and play cards. And the three lines were um, the cards being dealt and the rosary called and the fiddle playing Shandon and Anne. And, you know, I remember thinking it encapsulated like Irish houses in, in the country then. There was always a deck of cards. There was always a rosary beats and there was always a musical instrument. You know, any houses that, that you went to pretty well. And Shane, in in his ability, he could just evoke a time and a place, and like the wildest of songs, like the sick bed of Kukulin, or you know, the, the, the just the vivid imagery and and the body of an American, where you, you can see the lyrics are so vivid, you can see the stories leaping up in front of you almost. And and I think that a lot of that brilliant writing for a lot of people, they they think Shane fairy tale, and and I would say to anyone to you know listen to Rum Sodomy and the Lash and listen to to If I Should Fall from Grace and just the beauty of the writing. And there were a lot of other very tender songs mm-hmm. as well. I mean, Rain, Light and So, of course, is is the big love song, you know, that, that everybody recognizes immediately as well. But um, I said that, that to me, the broad majestic Shannon, it was a love song about, you know, Tipperary really and his life there and his bond with Tipperary and, and with Ireland. And, you know, and there were so many other songs that were, you know, they were rough and tender and they were funny and sad and they were bleak and uplifting because Shane could contain all those multitudes in a single sentence at yeah, times, you know? Yeah. And and um yeah let me ask extraordinary. you like you've spent so much time with them and uh, as I say I, my opinion of the man was, you know, led by so many different wrong views. Uh, I mean to start with the the teeth were the thing that people would focus on for so much of his career. Yeah. Frank Murray again uh, told me the story of being presented with a tour poster where they had replaced the teeth. That's They'd right. photoshopped That's in right. a full set of teeth. <laughs> and he was like, destroy these immediately because Shane will lose his mind <laughs> if he sees this. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, that that like you say, the swagger. There was a punk side to him. He was a punk. This this oh, he embodied punk, yeah. maybe more than any Irish per- person outside of Johnny Rotten. Yeah. Uh, how, what would we be surprised to know about him? 
having spent as much time as you did with them, well, what would really surprise people uh, if they had had the opportunity you had to spend as much time as you did with him? Um, I think he was funny as hell. He was one of the funniest people I have. Now, that mightn't surprise people, but he, he, well, he had a razor wit. And the other thing was he never held grudges. I, you know, and, and, you know, in that business, it's a tough business. And, you know, pe- you know, Shay, he fell in and out with people in the band. He fell in and out with people in the industry. He fell in and out. You know what I mean? And it just happens. And it's, but he never, he, I, I remember just after um, the Pogues, and, you know, he said himself, like, you know, when they fired him in 1991. And I remember just before he went on that tour, we were all living in London and he was heading off to Japan and he didn't want to go. And we were joking with him. I said, you know, they're going to fire you. They're going to fire you. And he, and he was, he, and, he, I saw, and he said, one of us said, I said, I bet you dinner, they're going to fire you. And then he called a couple of days later and he said, I owe you dinner. And he was, honestly, he was relieved, I would say. But I think for the band, he had put them in an impossible position. He didn't want to be in the band anymore. It was like, I think he did that thing where he didn't want to break up with them. So he made them break mm. up with him. Mm. You know, and I think to be fair to the band, they had put up with so much at that stage. And I think in the early 90s, Shane was not in good shape at all. I think it was probably the worst shape I, I'd seen him in. Um, and, and I think that maybe leaving the band was the only option, you know, for him and for the band as well. But they played in um, the town and country very soon afterwards. And I remember Shane wanted to go and see them. There was no, you know, like there were there was no hard feelings on his part. So we went up. And uh, there was myself and Vic and a couple of other friends and, and Shane and um, the people on the door, they said, well, you're not on the guest list. He said, it's OK, I'll pay. And like he had made so much money for the bloody town and country, you know, like he had yeah. sold seven nights in a row, sell out every Patrick's week, every, you know, these blistering shows. And, uh, you know, it was so churlish and they they knew who he was, but he was so great. You know, he just went in and he paid for tickets and, and just, you know, went and watched it and, you know, was never like he, he got where where they were coming from. Absolutely. At, at that stage. But I think what else would surprise? Everyone knows that he was ferociously smart, ferociously smart. I mean, a, an intellect that was just staggering. And I think that what people probably didn't know was that his his um, his his father, Morris, um, again, a, a wonderful human being, came from Dublin um, from a family that was very, very um literary, very academic, very intellectual. And, and um, you know, Shade's grandfather was a very well-known barrister. His uncle Billy was the head of Vincent Hospital and the president of the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, that's Morris's brother. Um, Morris studied economics in UCD back in the 50s and then went to London. But Morris always wanted to be a trombone player. Uh, I think Shane is very, very like his dad. That humour, the irreverence, the sort of the brilliance. And I think he gets... His mother, Therese, who was one of the most beautiful people I've ever met in my life, one of the most loving people, and she adored Shane, and Shane adored her. Oh, my God. Um, And I think he got that tenderness from her and that huge heart and the the capacity for enormous love and and empathy as well. So there was a mix of, and and it was his mother's side that were, were the music. They were all passionate about music, and Shane did grow up like, going to the Commons of Tipperary every summer, you know, from his school holidays. And he would stand on the table and belt out songs. And he was, you know, 
and she wanted this that they all adored him like he was he was this scrappy little kid who was funny and fierce and smart and bright and you know he was really indulged by the aunts and uncles and the whole family so I think he always he would spend as much time as he could always down the commons which was the 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 old family house and and um you know he had a great loyalty he also loved spending time with older people uh, he had these old fashioned manners that whenever an older person came into the room, this was, it didn't matter how blind drunk he was. Like, you know, I'm talking now like in his early 20s mm. and, and 30s. Whenever, especially an older woman came, he would always stand up. He would always, you know, he had that kind of very old-fashioned chivalry about him. Um, he was also very religious, extremely religious. Really? Yeah, very, very. And had, you know, even when he was in the hospital, he had a little statue of the Virgin Mary beside the bed, at all, you know, at all times. And he always wore the scalpulas, you know, the, the and, and the, the crucifix. He was very, very religious. Wow. Now, he dipped in and out of it, you know, during his 20s, but he was always very interested in other religions as well. And like, again, just prodigious knowledge about everything. You know, mm-hmm. everything it was ridiculous almost, but was very interested in theology, in the different religions, but kind of, you know, found his way back to a very traditional sort of Catholicism almost, where, you know, things like the rosary, where, you know, um he he was friends, he had he had priests who would come and visit him at home and he would chat with them. Of course, you know, a lot of people visit him at home. There was a it was a running, you know, joke with all of us that he he always and you know he had so many visitors to the hospital as well, but um, so I think I'm sort of wandering no, here. Okay, Sorry, Jarvis, I need you to ask me a question. I don't think that you uh, I don't think you've had much sleep either. So I really do appreciate Not you much. taking the time to do this. You've only just flown in from America. I think that one of the things that I always sensed from you was that he was an incredible friend. I always saw him, yeah. uh, you know, posting support for you and your work. And, you know, you don't get this outpouring of love without being a great friend to people. Incredibly kind. And, you know, I remember one time when um, I had suffered a bereavement and and they basically, Shane and Vic basically kidnapped me and said, "Okay, you're coming on tour with us. And it wasn't really what I was in the mood for, quite frankly, but they were in the States anyway and um, in in Washington, D.C. and and then, you know, Shane was given some fancy room with a jacuzzi and he insisted I took his room. And as he said himself, obviously, I don't have much call for a jacuzzi in my life. You know? <laughs> Actually, he, was very, he was very funny about it. But there was that kindness that he just wanted to make sure, you know, mm. he always wanted to make sure you were OK. He was enormously generous as well to everyone. And, and you know, the the... the and a, a, a sort of a minor funny story that, that, that he and I may have told you this before, Jordan. Apologies if I did. No, um, no. He he um, used to go to mass to Donnybrook Church, um, you know, quite a few years back now. And there were several um, people outside who had a perch where they would they would you know ask for money. It's like you know the, you, you, like I think they were people who were homeless or whatever. And a couple of them saw Shane coming and I and they, they got really like, get off our perch, get off our perch. They assumed that he was that he was <laughs> no. going to be there. And of course, sure, he took out the wads of cash, like rolls of cash and just handed them out, you know. And, and I saw him do that so many times in London or in Dublin where he would just empty out and he always carried wads of cash. And, you know, and, and it, he would empty out his pocket to, uh, you know, a homeless person he'd see or, or just mm. he was 
insanely generous and he he lived in my house in Dublin for uh, several years and I again we were just talking about this the other day um before Shane died how you know he, we would all sit in the kitchen he lo- he was very family oriented as well he was very close to his sister Siobhan like I said adored his mother and father and was you know he was very happy in a kind of a and so when he when he was living here in in the house here um, my sister was here as well, and her partner and Victoria, and it was it was kind of a madhouse, but great fun. And and there was a big phase of everybody playing Trivial Pursuit nonstop, and Shane always won, always won. It was really <laughs> annoying because he knew bloody everything. But he would go through phases where he we'd laugh and he, you know, I, and again I may have told you this before, like there was one night we were playing. And every to every question, he just answered Princess Margaret. And it got progressively more <laughs> hilarious. But on Christmas Eve here, and we were all going out to my family's house the next day. So we were getting stuff ready and we were wrapping presents and whatever. And Shane's birthday was Christmas Day, of course. And um, anyway, um, Vic was making dinner in the kitchen. And I turned around, you know, joking. I said, Shane, you're bloody useless. I said, look at us all. We're all busting our asses here. You're sitting on your fat arse doing nothing. And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, you can sing a song, for Christ's sake. And he went, okay. I said, not fairy tale. And that was our joke. I was like, not fairy tale. And, uh, so he literally sat there for about four, five, six hours and sang one Christmas song after another. And it was we were joking about the human jukebox. Uh, and But he, you know, he sat there and he just sang. And we were all there, as I said, like making dinner and doing stuff around the place. And it was just... It was a very memorable Christmas Eve, just again, just the good humour and the fun. And, you know, of course, we all stayed up until five in the morning and then, you know, the, the usual nonsense. But, beautiful but, um, Be- beautiful but memories. Lovely, lovely memories. And then uh, again, another time here where Victoria, and she won't mind telling this, uh, me telling this, uh, she accidentally set the kitchen on fire. And I wasn't in the house. I, was, I can't remember where I was, but I got a frantic call from Shane going, I'm not even in the country. I'm not even in the country. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Because he, he knew. He'd get blamed. He'd get blamed. <laughs> and I mean, and it wasn't. It was, you know, it was a kitchen fire, wasn't it? It wasn't a big deal. But but uh, but well, anyway, uh, you know, there, he was, I think there there, there was a, an assumption that if there was some chaos going on anywhere, that Shane was probably involved. <laughs> and, and in fact, usually he was. <laughs> Marion, thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Not at uh, all. Uh, really, I thought it was you know, important that uh, we we mark this day and we mark this moment for such a hero to the Irish abroad and uh, someone that I obviously desperately wanted to speak to at some point but never had the opportunity. I mean, it, what you've done here is just magic. We will, of course, have the rest of our episode over on patreon.com forward slash Abroad. And we will talk about an extremely busy week in politics and the world with a ceasefire in Israel and what happened in Dublin, of course, last week. We will look at how a city goes off the tracks and returns. I want to talk to Marion about how New York City itself was a no-go zone until they wrestled it from the hands of organised crime and gangs and whether that could be done with Dublin. After all, it's bloody small. Uh, how can we return law and order to the centre of the city? And what's Marion's experience of that over in the States? We have, of course, the bizarre one-on-one match between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. You're going to want to hear Marion's take on this. Why can't these two men 
attack the elephant in the room. Is it just a bad look to have a go at Donald Trump? Have they just learned that from the research that doesn't win you friends? We're going to talk about that and an awful lot more over on patreon.com forward slash Irishman abroad. Ready? You have the cameras rolling? This is America. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. You encouraged espionage against our people. You condemn any interference by Russia in the American election. By Russia or anybody else. Russia, please, if you can, get us Hillary Clinton's emails. Please, Russia, please. To renew America, we must revitalize our democracy.